Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, and reading verses 1 and 2. We read now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, as Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Now, the book of Nehemiah that we have been studying since, uh, since February is divided into two sections. Chapters 1 to 6 focus on the repair and the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. And then chapters 7 through to 13 focus on the renewal and the reconstitution of the people of Jerusalem. And so in many ways, as we come to chapter 6 this evening, we come, as it were, to a turning point in the book. We, we find the building project drawing to a close, and, and what we might say the real work, the work of building up the people, uh, just about to begin. And so we're going to look at this chapter under two headings, the opposition and then the completion First we have the opposition. You see that in verses 1 to 14 where Nehemiah focuses on the opposition to the building project. Verses 1 to 9, Nehemiah draws their attention to the overt opposition that he faced. Uh, He starts by recording the first wave of opposition in verses 1 to 4. And he begins by introducing us to the main antagonists at the beginning of verse 1. Oh, we have Sanballat, the governor from Samaria in the north. We have Tobiah, a Persian-appointed civil servant from Ammon in the east. We have Geshem, an Arabian king from the south. And we have a group identified as the rest of our enemies. And these men receive a report about the rebuilding of Jerusalem in verse 1. They hear that Nehemiah has built the wall. They hear that there are no breaches left in it. The only thing needing to be done are the doors need to be set in the gates. Once that is done, uh, the work is finished. And upon receiving this report, Sambalat and Geshem present a request to Nehemiah. Verse 2, they invite him to come and meet him. And the place of meeting will be Hakafirim in the plain of Ono, about 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. The purpose of the meeting is to do harm to Nehemiah. You can imagine that they want to get Nehemiah away from his friends, away from his supporters, in a very lonely place, this place Hakafirim, in the plain of Ono, and there they're just going to get rid of him. Maybe they'll say something like, oh well, we just found Nehemiah and he was collapsed in a ditch, he, he fell off a cliff, we don't know what happened, but, but poor Nehemiah is gone. And Nehemiah delivers a very definite response to that request in verse 3. He sends messengers back to Sanballat and Geshem. The message is that he is doing a great work and that he cannot possibly come down. The work is at a crucial stage and he cannot delay it, he cannot leave it behind. But Sanballat and Geshem refuse to take no for an answer in verse 4. They send the same message to Nehemiah on four different occasions. Come and meet us, come and meet us, come and meet us, come and meet us. And Nehemiah keeps responding with that clear and consistent no. Nehemiah goes on to record the second wave of opposition in verses 5 down to 9. 
Sambalat proceeds to deliver a communication to Nehemiah, verses 5 to 7. He sends his servant with an open letter, a letter that is designed to be read by other people, not just Nehemiah, and he begins the letter with the words, It is reported among the nations. Or in today's language, language that I'm sure you've heard before, people are saying. How many of you have got emails? How many of you have got text messages? How many of you have had phone calls from people and the first thing they say is, people are saying, I can't count how many times I've got those kind of messages over the last 10 years of ministry. People are saying, and you feel like saying, who are these people? He continues by informing Nehemiah that Geshem can confirm that it's true that the people and nations are saying this. He carries on by saying that the nations, the peoples are saying that Nehemiah and the Jews are intending to rebel against Persia and make Nehemiah king. He goes further and says that it's been reported that Nehemiah has appointed prophets to go and proclaim and herald him as king in Jerusalem. And he closes by saying that the king of Persia will hear about this and that the only option available to Nehemiah is that he come down and take counsel with him. Having received that communication, Nehemiah delivers a comeback. Look at verse 8. He sends a letter to Sambala telling him that none of the things that he is saying are true. He goes on to say that Sambalat is inventing these things in his own mind, literally fabricating them in his heart. Nehemiah then draws our attention to the fact that he called on the Lord following Sambalat's communication. Look at verse 9. He knows that Sambalat is trying to frighten him, trying to frighten his supporters. He knows that Sambalat wants to see his hands drooping in the work, becoming discouraged in the work. And so he prays that God would strengthen his hands, that God would encourage his hands. We move though from the overt opposition to the covert opposition in verses 10 to 14. We're now introduced to a prophet called Shemaiah, verse 10. He is the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel. He is confined to his home. He is giving the impression that he is hiding, that he is fearful for his life. Uh, and Nehemiah meets him in his home. And upon meeting Nehemiah, Shemaiah presents him with a proposal. Look again at verse 10. He invites Nehemiah to come and meet him in the house of God, in the temple. The, the word in Hebrew indicates the, the sanctuary. He instructs him to close the doors when they enter it. And he implores him to do so because people are coming to kill him and they're coming to kill him at night. But again we see Nehemiah resisting such a proposal in verses 11 to 13. He begins by saying, should a man such as I run away? Nehemiah is the governor. Nehemiah is the leader among the people. What kind of message is it going to send out to the people if the governor is running away, if the leader is running away at the first sign of trouble? This is what leaders need to be. Can I say that to you, elders especially, but also to the deacons? This is your role, that you don't run away at the first sign of trouble, that you are the last to retreat. You are the ones who take the lead. You are the ones who stand firm in the face of opposition. And that is Nehemiah. He is the one who says, can a man such as me, can a leader such as me run away when trouble comes, when danger comes? And he continues by saying, what man such as I could go into the temple and live? Nehemiah knows his Bible. 
He knows that anyone apart from the priests were prevented, were forbidden from entering the temple. He knew that if he entered the temple, even as the governor, he would face the death penalty. And so he says, can a man such as I go into the temple and live? And Nehemiah can see through Shemaiah's words. And he realizes that God hasn't sent this prophet Instead, this prophet has been hired by Sambalat and Tobiah, and we see what they are trying to do. They are trying to make Nehemiah afraid. They are trying to make Nehemiah sin. They are trying to give Nehemiah a bad name among the people. And having refused the proposal, uh, Nehemiah goes on to uh, come to the Lord in prayer. Verse 14, in chapter 5, he asked God to remember him for all the good that he had done. He now asks God to remember Sanballat and Tobiah and all the prophets, including the prophetess Noadiah, who had been trying to make him afraid. These people have been trying to hinder the work of God. They have been trying to halt the work of God. This work that has been done for the Lord's honour. This work that has been done for the Lord's glory. And so Nehemiah doesn't want them to go unpunished. He is saying, Lord, remember them. Remember what they have been doing. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we we can see that they are showing us how we ought to respond when facing opposition in the Lord's work. How we ought to respond when facing opposition in the Lord's work. We can see the importance of perspective when facing opposition. That's what we see in Nehemiah 6. Nehemiah recognizes that he is doing a great work. Now, from a human perspective, he was doing a great work when he was in Persia, cupbearer to the king. That was a very high position. Uh, repairing an old wall and an economically impoverished backwater of the Persian Empire, such as, such as Jerusalem, that's not a great work. That's a nothing work. But Nehemiah understands that this work is being done for the Lord's glory, and so that work is a great work. And that is an important lesson for ourselves. As we have gone through this series, we have been saying that we are attempting to regroup, rebuild, reach out to our community with the gospel after two years of lockdowns and restrictions. We want to see the gospel advancing. We want to see the Lord's kingdom expanding. We want to see the Lord's people flourishing. And I want to remind you this evening that that is a great work. That is a great work. And it's a great work because we are serving a great God. The world may say the greatest work you can do is if you rise up to the highest position in the community. The highest paid position in the community. The most influential position in the community. But but the great works are the works that are done for a great God. That is the perspective we need to have. We can also see the importance of persistence when facing opposition. That is what we see in Nehemiah 6. Nehemiah refuses to become distracted or discouraged as he engages in this great work. He persists and he perseveres in the work despite the unrelenting opposition that is coming from Sambalat, that is coming from Tobiah, that is coming from Geshem. And again, that is such an important lesson for ourselves. The devil loves it when Christians and churches down tools, as it were. 
The devil loves it when we become so distracted, so discouraged by all the opposition that we're facing that we just say, well, I'll just stop. I'll just take a back seat. I'll just stop doing what I used to do. I'll not be as involved as I once was. But Nehemiah gives us this wonderful example, this wonderful encouragement to keep persisting, to keep persevering in the Lord's work when the going gets tough. You know the, you know the song. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And that is what we are to be doing, isn't it? Persevering, persisting when the going gets tough. And we can see the importance of prayer when facing opposition. That's what we see in Nehemiah 6. When facing overt opposition, Nehemiah prays, Lord, strengthen my hands. When facing covert opposition, Nehemiah prays, Lord, remember these enemies. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. A man who took his trials, his tribulations, his temptations to the Lord. And yet again, friends, that is an important lesson for ourselves. We we can never underestimate the importance of prayer when facing opposition in the Lord's work. We should never lose sight of what John Knox clung on to. You remember in the hardest days of the Reformation, John Knox said that one man with God is always in the majority. And all we need to do is take our setbacks and our struggles every disappointment, every discouragement to him. We, we take it to the throne of grace. Can I ask you tonight, friends, are, are you facing opposition in the Lord's work? You might be facing opposition from someone in the workplace. You might be facing opposition from someone in the school. You might be facing opposition from a very close friend. You might even be facing opposition from a family member, maybe a parent. Maybe a child. Maybe even your spouse. And if you are facing opposition tonight in the Lord's work, these verses are drawing your attention to the importance of perspective. The importance of persistence. The importance of prayer when such waves of opposition come crashing against us. I'm sure we are all facing opposition. And if we are not facing opposition, we will be facing it soon. So the importance of persistence, the importance of prayer, the importance of perspective. There we have the opposition. But we move on to the completion, verses 15 to 19. And now Nehemiah focuses on the completion of the building project. Verses 15 to 16, we see the completion Nehemiah begins by focusing on the rebuilding of the wall. Verse 15, he tells us at the beginning of verse 15 that the wall was finished. In chapter 1, he received a report that the gates of the city and the, and the walls of the city had been broken down and destroyed by fire. Chapter 2, he had asked for the king's permission to return and rebuild it. And now in chapter 6, he records the fact that the wall was finished, the work was completed. And he tells us in verse, six, in verse 15, When the work was completed, it was the 25th day of the month of Elul. It took, he says, 52 days. Now, friends, that is an incredible time scale. 
That is an incredible time scale by today's standards. Can you just imagine if, if we got all our guys together and said, let's get this church building up, and it happened in 52 days? We'd say, wow. And this is happening four to 500 years before the birth of Christ. And so many scholars say, try and attempt to explain how it was completed so quickly. Some suggest that the restoration work was already begun prior to Nehemiah's arrival. Others suggest that the people were motivated by fear, and if people are fearful, they'll work harder. And still others suggest that the work was done to an inferior quality. However, T.J. Betts makes this comment. He writes, there are at least three overriding reasons the work was accomplished as it was. First, Nehemiah was committed to the glory of the Lord and the removal of the reproach that had come upon the people of God. Second, Nehemiah prayerfully and actively trusted in the Lord to give him and the people success in doing the work. And third, the people of God joined together cooperatively and enthusiastically to rebuild the wall. They had a mind to work. These three reasons provide a recipe for the successful execution and completion of God's purposes for his people. God will show himself strong, do amazing things on behalf of his people and through his people when the people of God follow this strategy. When the people of God are dependent on God, when the people of God are working together, cooperating together, who knows what will happen. And after focusing on the rebuilding of the wall, Nehemiah highlights the response that it was met with. Look at verse 16. He knows that their enemies were aware about what had happened. Beginning of verse 16, they hear that the wall has been finished. During these 52 years, they've been trying to hinder the work, halt the work, harass the work. They now hear that the work is completed. And upon hearing that the wall is finished, these enemies, verse 16, become afraid. They have been trying to make Nehemiah afraid, but now, ironically, they become afraid. And they fall greatly in their own esteem. Their their high opinion of themselves takes a real tumble, takes a real shake. And finally, these enemies have to acknowledge that the work had been accomplished with the help of Nehemiah's God. They see the unparalleled, unprecedented success of this building project. And they come to the conclusion that this needs more than a natural explanation. This needs a supernatural explanation. They come to the realisation that the hand of God was in it. Now wouldn't that be wonderful if people looked at what our congregation was getting up to and they were left saying we don't know how to explain what is going on with that congregation but it must be the hand of God because it certainly isn't failure, it certainly isn't Martin and it certainly isn't anyone else in this congregation. It is the hand of God. We move from the completion, though, to the communication, verses 17 to 19. There is communication with Tobiah, verse 17 to the beginning of verse 19. The the nobles of Judah are sending many letters to Tobiah, and he's a good little pen pal. He he writes back. And Nehemiah emphasizes that many of the people of Judah were bound by oath. They had made a pact, a pledge with Tobiah. He was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. His son Jehohanan was the son-in-law of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Tobiah is very well connected. In fact, he is probably better connected than Nehemiah was. And Nehemiah notes that the nobles of Judah were reporting the good deeds of Tobiah 
in his presence. We can imagine what Nehemiah is having to hear as he meets with these nobles. If you remember last week in chapter 5, we saw how Nehemiah would hold these feasts for the Jewish nobles. And we can imagine old Shechaniah sitting down at one of these feasts and saying to Nehemiah, you're being a wee bit hard on my son-in-law. He is so good to my daughter. Tobiah is like a son to my wife and I. And meanwhile, Meshulam is nodding in agreement. And he's saying to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you can tell a lot about a man from his family. And let me tell you what, he's, what his son is like to my daughter. My, his son is so good to my daughter. And Tobiah has been so generous to our family as a whole. He is a really good guy. And poor Nehemiah is sitting at these feasts and he's having to listen to all this rubbish. But things get worse. Because Nehemiah notes that these nobles were reporting his words to Tobiah. They don't know the meaning of the word confidentiality. They'll have a committee meeting with Nehemiah, a building project, a committee group, deacon's court group in today's language. Uh, and, And as soon as the meeting is over, these nobles go out and they start writing their letters to old Tobiah. Keeping Tobiah up to date with what is going on. No such thing as confidentiality. Nehemiah, though, doesn't simply record the communication with Tobiah, verse 17 to the beginning of verse 19. He also notes that there was communication coming from Tobiah at the very end of verse 19. Austin Walker has rightly described Tobiah as being a pain in the neck. And here we find this pain in the neck, sending letters to Nehemiah. The purpose of these letters is to make him afraid. Tobias' goal of seeing Nehemiah's great work fail hasn't changed at all. The only thing that has changed with Tobiah is his strategy. He used to attack Nehemiah in public. And now he sees he's not getting anywhere with public attacks, so he goes for a private attack, an attack through little letters, little text messages, little emails that he knows that Nehemiah can't really show to anyone else. The the venom is just dropping from every single letter. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we are being reminded that the Lord's work will be accomplished. The Lord's work will be accomplished. That is what we see in Nehemiah 6. The wall of Jerusalem is finished. The the building project is complete. And even the enemies of the Jews have to admit that this was accomplished with the hand, the help of the living God. And that is vital for us to remember. The aim of this sermon series, as I keep saying, has been to attempt to encourage us as we attempt to regroup, as we attempt to rebuild, as we attempt to reach out to our community with the gospel after lockdown. And what we must never lose sight of, friends, is that whatever happens, the Lord's plans, the Lord's purposes, the Lord's promises concerning his cause, his church will prosper. The Lord has promised. That he will build his church. And nothing and no one, not even the very gates of hell, will be able to prevail against this. That is a glorious truth. And it should inspire us and equip us and empower us and motivate us as we seek to engage in that great 
work. I've not quoted John Piper for a few weeks, so I think I'll give you a wee John Piper quote. John Piper writes, The Christ who rules earth and heaven said, I will build my church. Do you hear God's call in that on your life? Do you want to pursue something absolutely certain? Do you want to give yourself to something invincible? Nothing done for this Christ is ever done in vain. Give yourself to his cause. The Lord's purposes will be accomplished. The Lord's work concerning his church will be accomplished. So friends, let's give ourselves to that cause. But as we consider these verses, we're also being challenged with the question, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? That is what we see in Nehemiah 6. In Nehemiah 6, we have two distinct groups of people. On the one hand, we've got Nehemiah, a man committed to the Lord, a man committed to his cause. And on the other hand, we have Tobiah, a man who is opposed to the Lord and opposed to his cause. You've got these two groups. But there is a third group. The fence-sitting Jewish officials. The fence-sitting Jewish nobles. They have one foot in the camp of Nehemiah. They have another foot in the camp of Tobiah. The time has come for these men to make up their minds and decide whose side they are actually on. The walls have been rebuilt. The building project is complete. The people of God are about to be reconstituted, renewed. Whose side are they on? And that is so important for us this evening to hear and to take on board. You see, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't allow any of us the luxury of sitting on the fence. It doesn't allow us the luxury of having a foot in two camps when it comes to our commitment to the Lord and our commitment to his cause. We are either bound to him or we are bound to something or someone else. We are either for him or we are against him. We are either in him or we are outside of him. We are either heaven bound with him or hell bound apart from him. But friends, I have said this to you before and others have said it as well. There is no middle ground. There is no sitting on the fence. There is no neutrality. There is no having a foot in two camps. And so as we close, I want to ask each of you a question. It's a question for the young people here this evening. But it's also a question for those who are, who are not so young. Maybe those who would even say that they are getting older. The question is, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Can you say, I have decided to follow Jesus? No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, No turning back. No turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus.
This is a question for those who are 8 years old. Those who are 18 years old. Those who are approaching 48 years old. Those who are coming up to 88 years old. Friend, whose side are you on? Let's endeavour to be found on the side of Christ and engaged in his great work.